Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast where we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 426 is recorded live November 7th, 2019. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the mouth and the mouth <laughs> from the mouse infested uh, scuba bunker. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. Enjoyed seeing the snow go away from this morning. Did it go away? I didn't notice. <laughs> well, about half of my yard has got it, most of it gone. Okay. Well, I'll take that. Yeah, it was uh, 30 degrees uh this morning and uh it was like one of those frosts that uh didn't go away so hopefully this kills some of those cold germs and mosquitoes that we've been dealing yes. with we need them to be gone but uh the opposite of that is this is the this cold snap forced all the mice in my neighborhood <laughs> to, <laughs> to decide that they're going to come and visit my office and i normally keep the office door closed because if I leave it open, the cats like to lay on everything and make it stinky and smelly and full of hair. And uh, with it closed, the mice decided to do that. So I've now compromised and I have the door half open. So ha. there's some cats in here. Now, if I can just get the cats to eat the mice and they don't party, that's probably the other problem. But Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank everybody who's joined us on this uh Post time change evening. This time change also kick my, kicks my butt, but uh, it does encourage me to go to bed earlier. So, at least according to the clock, I'm going to bed earlier. I'm probably going to bed later. Ah, gotta love the daylight savings time. Well, the first article that we have showing up on the list is a follow up. If you remember the Blackbeard's pirate ship, you had a little bit of a tussle going on between North Carolina and a video production company who had spent two decades documenting the salvage of Queen Anne's Revenge, uh, which is a legendary pirate ship Blackbeard ran aground in 1718. Well, the debate focused on the intricacies of federal copyright laws and state sovereign immunity, Blackbeard wasn't far from the justice's mind. So what's happened is the Supreme Court had to weigh in because the state basically said, eh, we're immune, we can do what we want. And so we have Chief, Chief Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor uh, said it was deeply troubling that after North Carolina was caught with copyrighted material and agreed to pay the fine, the state legislator late legislature enacted Blackbeard's law to convert the salvage effort to public record. Associate uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said there was something unseemly about the state being able to hold its own copyrights while infringing on others to our heart's content, in quotes. Justice Stephen Baer said the copyright infringement, which Congress sought to ban in 1990, could 
lead a state like California to show films such as Rocky, Spider-Man, and Groundhog's Day on its own streaming service. It could be rampant states ripping off copyright holders, Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh said. Breyer also wondered why states haven't invaded copyrights and patents more under the theory that they're immune from being sued. By stealing technology, said states could discover the solution to all their budget problems. <laughs> Shipwrecks were discovered. I, you know, and some of these, you, know, you, you have uh, both sides of the political spectrum were all going, what in the hell do you think you're doing? <laughs> yeah, they're basically slapping the state that, uh, yeah, you're, you're kind of sovereign, but it doesn't mean you can be... Uh, that you can just violate anything that you you feel like. Well, it seems like they're doing it. <laughs> well, it, it did. And and to go back even farther, the state was originally found guilty, and then it was appealed to a federal court, and they found them that innocent because they were the state. So it's gone back and forth three or four times, and it got to the Supreme Court, and I have to say this was not what I was expecting, but it's entertaining. Uh, the ship uh, wreck was discovered in 1996 uh, by a private research and salvage company, Intersol, that agreed that North Carolina owns a shipwreck, but it contracted with Nautilus Productions, owned by Frederick Allen, to shoot video and photo of the salvage. The state posted some of the material in 2013 as part of its tourism efforts, after agreeing to pay $15,000 for infringement, it copied and published more material than passed a law to legalize its actions. Yeah, that's convenient. More than 300 items of the ship, uh, the sunken shipper to display at the state-owned North Carolina Maritime Museum, including a two-ton cannon. The state holds annual pirate festivals to mark the faint private notoriety. Although federal law protects such copyright materials from infringement, a federal appeals court agreed with North Carolina states are immune under the 11th Amendment of the Constitution for some private copyright infringement claims. That didn't sit well with the videographers who, were, who resorted to play on words with the Supreme Court filing. After Nautilus spent two decades creating works of photography and filming at considerable risk underwater excavation by Blackbeard's famed Queen Anne's Revenge, the state blatantly pirated them, the company protested. Its lawyers, Derek Schaefer, if I think I'm saying that right, told the court Tuesday it would have been, oh, what is he saying here, antithetical to the framers of the Constitution that states can infringe private property rights without paying. We think that the constitutional violation pretty much every time, Schaefer said. But more North, but North Carolina's Deputy Solicitor General Ryan Park said juries have awarded excessive fines for copyright infringement. The state, he said, must devote its tax dollars to more important functions such as schools and disaster relief. States, Park said, are simply different. So I don't, it doesn't appear that they've uh, completely ruled yet, but this has just uh, been at least a day of hearings. This is updated, it was published on the 5th. So yeah, they, we should have a little bit more. I looked, I couldn't find anything more. Uh, there's a lot of discussion of it coming up, but this had the most details and I love the quotes. Well, the government uh, is all powerful, and what they suggest is probably correct. <coughs> well, the the thing is, it was just didn't need to happen. They spent more time; they'd spent more time legal money wise, uh, 
trying to get out of paying than they would have just to pay. So it, you you know that there is some that there there's something a little bit more to this, you know, people just feeling all full of themselves and thinking that they're immune. Uh, and we we got to look at what the intent. I mean, for one thing, is they're right. Is that uh, you know the there's specific rules that are supposed to protect people and and property laws. And these particular, this particular state was just saying, eh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't apply to us. Uh, when you look at copyright and patent laws, the, the idea behind copyright was to let the creators have a reasonable amount of time where they could profit off it and be protected. Uh, and, and thanks to the wonderful conglomerate that owns uh, Mickey Mouse, uh, that has gone to an extreme that was never originally intended. So we've already screwed that one up, you know, with 99 years plus. Uh, so copyright law is too far, but then you have the state who is going the other way. And then when you look at patent law, the idea behind the patent law was to get it put into circulation so that that knowledge could be built upon, but that you had to pay the patent holder if you were going to uh, uh, use that patent, but the patents were also shorter. They, they keep trying to extend those as well. So. Business as usual. Yeah. Well, then we have this next one and uh, it's becoming more evident that uh, plastic in the waters out of control. This one's a sea of plastic discovered in the Caribbean stretches for miles. And you really need to look at our show notes and click on the link for this article because it is not an exaggeration. The Caribbean is right in our next door here. It says a shocking blanket of plastic discovered off the coast of idyllic Caribbean Island stretches nearly five miles long and is choking wildlife. And this is literally I would say the density of plastic in that photo has to be 90 to 95%. So imagine it's a square foot of water where there's much more plastic than water. In fact, if, if you didn't, you could crop this photo, show it to somebody and they would not know it's water. They would just assume that was just a big pile of plastic. It said an underwater photographer recently stumbled across a scene that shocked and devastated her, a blanket of plastic waste several miles wide, floating off the coast of her previously pristine island home. She discovered the Great Caribbean Garbage Patch about 15 miles from the tiny 12-mile-long island of Roatan, which had been described as a resembling a paradise. We were on a dive trip to set islands that don't quite break the ocean surface, photographer Carolyn Power told The Telegraph. They're one of the most pristine dive sites in this part of the Caribbean. Dive team passed through floating garbage for nearly five miles. Power, who dedicated her career to increasing awareness of the plastics problem. Everywhere looked plastic bags of all shapes, sizes, chip bags, Ziplocs, groceries, trash, snack bags, and other packaging. Some were whole, the rest were just pieces. And if you look, they have a photo from it under the water. And it's unbelievable. I mean, it's just... At one point, the team uh, reached a denser area about two miles wide that had multiple trash lines that stretched from horizon to horizon. 
There was also a seemingly infinite number of plastic forks, spoons, drink bottles, and plates. There were broken soccer balls, toothbrushes, a TV, and mini shoes, and flip-flops. The garbage probably came from uh, Guatemala. It says the Montague River in Guatemala, Washington, D.C. during heavy rains. According to Blue Planet Society, a nonprofit working to end the exploitation of the oceans, the organization calls images unbelievable. You see a lot of shocking images, images of environmental destruction. This is right up there with the worst. There's a lack of infrastructure education, so many people either burn trash or throw it in the rivers, Power said. This is a developed nation, first world problem as well, she added, point out that sending plastic to a landfill is not much more sophisticated. We need to improve waste management, environmental education, recycling facilities on a global scale. Powers is asking anyone who wants to help donate to a, a Roatan Marine Park and a nonprofit working to protect Roatan's fragile coral reefs. She's also asking us to consider our individual plastic consumption, to think twice before pulling out a Ziploc bag, ordering carry-out styrofoam, tossing out plastic cutlery, or leaving our reusable grocery bags at home. I wonder how much of this came about because of the hurricane and stuff like that they've had down there in the last month. Um, that's going to be part of it. So let's, we, we have an article on some gondoliers cleaning up a river, but let's jump onto that and take a look. Uh, let me see if I can find it. What I've got is a video here. Um, and we'll paste this one into the chat room so they can see. Um, remember that company that, uh, that Dutch, he was a teenager, he's in his twenties now, but he had built that floating boom. Right. Uh, that's the one that's back out there working again. Yep. And he did get it uh, working. So if you're into engineering and process, it's very interesting to go and look and see what he did with that boom. And what was happening is that the plastic and the boom were both being pushed by the wind, but they were moving at the same speed. So what he ended up doing was setting up a sea anchor attached to it, and that slowed the boom down so the plastic could collect in it. And so they've, they, it's been effective and they're working on releasing a new version. Uh, they're working, they're engineering it right now. And that should be in the water next year, I think is what they were saying. But what this was, and if, when you watch the video, it's a little bit like an Apple uh, kickoff. Uh, I mean, across the top, uh, you know, big giant screens and then uh, dramatic pauses but what he's done is he is uh, to give a little bit of background is he did some research on okay I've come up with a way that we can clean the plastic out of the oceans but that doesn't do us any good if they're going back in so he developed or his the his nonprofit developed a camera that you put under bridges that are over rivers and it will count the plastic that is going by so he was able to determine the amount of plastic, and uh, here's and here's an interactive map. I'm gonna, if you've got a good internet connection, it's worth looking at this map. Now, the the only downside that I saw this map is it didn't include 
any of the freshwater lakes or major rivers. It was pretty much rivers that fed into the ocean. Uh, and I think it's just a matter of resources. Uh, but he had, he, they had said that there was approximately 10,000 rivers. And uh, they said that the thousand most polluting rivers in their study were producing over 80% of the plastic that was going into the ocean. Wow. So what he had done is he said, okay, if that's the problem, then he developed, uh, he called it a skunk's work project, but they developed a, uh, I guess I call it a pontoon vessel. Uh, imagine a pontoon boat that's but probably 60 feet in length and maybe 30, 40 feet wide. Uh, and you moor it in the river and it collects the plastic. So he's got three of these out in rivers right now, and he's got uh, agreements with several countries and also the uh, uh, Los Angeles County, and they're going to put some more in. So he's got he's got three going. The one he shows in here is the fourth unit, and that one's uh, going to be placed out here pretty soon. So his goal is to cover all 1,000 of the most polluting rivers with these boats by the end of 2025. A noble so, effort, for sure. Yeah. So it's it's worth watching the river, uh, the river, the uh, the video. And, you know, I'm, I'm not doing it justice. You, you need to see it uh, and how effective it is. Now, there, there's, a, there's a few things when I'm watching it uh, that they think that they've got fixed but we'll have to see. One of them was uh, trees. He thinks that the way they've got the, uh, the way it angles, that uh, trees won't get caught up in it, that it'll float by. The other thing that I noticed is that floating vegetation that goes down the river, it, it's not any, basically what's collecting is anything that's floating. Imagine a pontoon boat where between the pontoons, you've got a mesh, uh, conveyor belt that just pulls everything out. It's solar powered, self-powering. Uh, it drops all the waste it collects into onto this barge, uh, and it's got several bins. I think it showed four bins, and they're estimating that on the the heavily trashed rivers, that you're going to need to clean out those bins about uh, every two to three days. Uh, but he, he had even done some numbers where he says it actually will, it's a, it's a significant uh, economic advantage to have these to where the economic disadvantage of not having them is much higher. Interesting. Yeah. And it sounds very effective. I, I was surprised because that, you know, at first I was kind of poo-pooing it when he when he did his speech. For one thing, it's it's, it's a little flamboyant. You got to give the guy; he's a young man. Give him a lot of credit for sticking with what he wants to do and getting up there and speaking. And you know, who who doesn't want to talk like Steve Jobs? But you know, <laughs> I sometimes I think a little bit of that is a little bit of grandstanding. But uh, I think the reason he took that approach is that it's really about fundraising at this point. <laughs> Yeah, you because know, he's a nonprofit, and you look at a lot of his supporters. If you visit his website, 
which uh, let me see what they what they call the website. It's uh, theoceancleanup.com. Uh, you can see all the funding that he's getting. So, you know, the Dutch government has been uh, very heavily involved in it, but there's a lot of other governments and he's getting uh, Thailand has signed on. They've got a project that they're going to do. Uh, you know, Indonesia, uh, but they did, sh- he showed a video and he said uh, in, the, in the Caribbean, which, which kind of ties in with this, every time it rains, the river is solid plastic trash because it just the people aren't taking care of it. So these these countries with the, where they haven't taken the efforts to develop a waste treatment, it just goes in the river and it, it flows out. So uh, what I'm hoping that also comes with this is that this is this is part of the solution, but ultimately. It even goes beyond that, which is just don't throw it in there. You know, in that previous article she mentioned, you know, don't uh, don't even put them in the landfills. Well, you know, if you can recycle, that's great. But, uh, you know, we're not, I don't see, I don't think it's reasonable for us to get to zero plastics. But we can definitely significantly improve how we handle them and how we use them. Interesting to follow up and follow through on that one. And then uh, gondoliers take up scuba diving to clear rubbish from the Venice canals. Uh, Venice gondoliers have been swapping boat hats for scuba helmets and diving into canals in a cleanup operation of a UNESCO city that turned up everything from washing machines to bicycles. It's another world down there. Lorenzo, was that Brunello, told AFP TV late on Sunday as he prepared to plunge the murky waters for the first nighttime trawl for garbage cluttering up the famous city's waterways. It is the sixth time since February that gondoliers have stripped off their trademark stripy tops and donned wetsuits to bring the surface unwatered belongings from tires and television sets to vintage radios and telephones. Their efforts have been rewarded. Over two and a half tons of rubbish collected so far. Sunday's haul near the famous uh, rail tow bridge brought up a kitchen stove, a fan, a cassette player, computer monitor, and floor lamp. About six or seven gondoliers show up for each session. It's something we do the city for free because the city has given us so much. I will note, though, that that is not a wetsuit. He's in a hazmat suit. Helmet, gear, and the oh, people yeah. in the boat are also appropriately donned. Yes. Yeah, you're correct. Uh, and I had, uh, I've never been there, but uh, there's a, a story in my family. I We had, you know, the proverbial rich uncle, and he and my aunt went over to Venice, and they were hoping for a good time. And about the only thing they could talk about was how stinky the river was. You go at a certain time of the year, it absolutely is. And it is a big hazmat aspect. You're not going to be diving that in a wetsuit and a regulator if you have any sense at all. It's like diving the canals in Paris because mm-hmm. they occasionally will lower the levels in certain ones and then they get the stuff out. And we covered that a couple of years ago. Yeah. And had a big event. And the key fair. item out of that one was the same, bicycles. Yeah. But again, that's hazmat stuff. That's not normal scuba. Yeah. And they were talking about that, uh, you, know, the, you know, while they're doing it to give back, they also have noted that in low tides, a lot of this trash uh, can sometimes be seen. 
So they want to get that out of there as well. Yeah, they said uh, gondolers behind the project Stefano Vio and Alestro Zufi, which I'm sure that's not pronounced correctly. Uh, they said they would be organizing a dive a month until April until the, in the Grand Canal, majority artery that leads to St. Mark's Square. That's where we work every day and where we often have to battle with rubbish floating on the surface, they were quoted in saying the city council statement. They largely blamed the bad-behaved Venetians for the garbage problem. It doesn't take too many people to make a big mess. You know, if you just pitch it out your window and it lands in the canal, and there you go. Well, just like how many people do a picnic on the beach, and what's left? Oh, my gosh. I mean, just go down to Silver Beach after 4th of July. Oh, it's It's terrible, I know. Yeah, and, and you know, and and the the thing is, the more effort you do to clean up after it, the more it encourages people. You know, it an example seems to be that way. Yeah, it, I mean, it's the same thing. It's these are the same people who, uh, you know, leave uh, popcorn tubs and uh, plastic cups in the movie theater when they're when they're done, <laughs> when when they could just go and throw it in the trash can on the way out. Yeah, uh, it's just. Uh, I was driving down the road just this last week. I mean, I think it was Monday or Tuesday. And I saw three cars just flip like plastic cups right out the window. So I can remember when I was. It is odd this time of year. There are certain sections. I was coming back from South Bend the other day. And it's like you almost want to stop and pick up the trash. Yeah, I, I. I did the same thing. I was on US 31 and I was, I was looking and, and it was so dense. It wouldn't take you long to fill three or four trash bags. Well, yeah. The, I went through a part that looked like somebody had just dumped stuff there because I mean, it was white trash paper on both sides of the road and only maybe for a quarter mile. It was really thick. Yeah. Yeah. It must be the same spot. I just, I couldn't believe how much trash was there. Does it, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Uh, and, and we seem to go, I can remember in the 70s, it was real bad. And then they did a, a push, you know, the, the crying Indian on TV commercials. Mm-hmm. And then in Michigan, we enacted the 10 cent uh, bottle deposit. And it seemed like everything overnight got better. And then I can remember in the eighties, it was kind of bad at the end. And then they started doing the adopt a highway program and the highways got to be looking pretty decent. Uh, but I, it's not right to have a few people just throwing crap out there. And then you're asking a bunch of volunteers to go pick up after them slobs. Well, just go to any parking lot and look into who emptied their ashtray. <laughs> yeah. These are the same people who are texting while driving. There are stoplights. Here's here's me on my soapbox, old man grumbling. But I was on Niles Avenue heading over 94, and that and the, the light turns green. You can only get about eight cars through there because everybody's on. As soon as they stop moving, they get they start texting, and you don't see the car in front of them started to move. And that's it's funny you say that. That came up on a topic of 
uh, ask a policeman the other day, and it's like they're seeing it themselves. How many people at a four-way stop when they turn, one hand's on the wheel and one's got the cell phone? It, it's nuts. Yeah, four-way stops, it, it's like, you know, they, people, they're so distracted, they can't tell who stopped first. And it takes longer because I know you were there a full two seconds before I was. And then they're just staring at me like, well, why aren't you going? It's like, because you were first. So I just need to get that. It does sound like it's two old men grumbling, doesn't it? Yeah. I just need to get that big old (laughs) Mad Max grill on the front and I'll don't give a damn anymore. I'll just blast through. Uh, Yeah. Get off my lawn. (laughs) (laughs) So, Okay. I got to change the topic of this podcast. Uh, Shipwreck schooner with unique centerboard gets historic designation. Uh, the Montgomery schooner was discovered in 1958 by divers at Camp Haven, the Wisconsin military camp that was operated uh, as an anti-aircraft testing range from 1949 to 1958, according to Catlin Zant, a marine, a maritime archaeologist. With the Wisconsin Historical Society, the ship sits almost half a mile offshore of the Whistling Straits Golf Course in Mosul, Wisconsin. Mosul is located about 60 miles north of the city of Milwaukee. The vessel was recently placed in the National Historic, or the National Register of Historic Places. The official list of the nation's historic places worthy of preservation according to the National Park Service. The wreck has been known to native divers, but is brought to the attention of the Wisconsin Historical Society in 2015 by local diver Stephen Radovan, who'd remembered that was a popular diving site in the 70s. Zander team started searching for it about 1,000 feet off the coast of the golf course. As Radovan had described, the National Center for Coastal Ocean Sciences joined the search in the summer of 2017, expanding the search area with the use of side scan sonar. The federal agency looked to the coast of Sheboygan at fisheries and fish habitats from its original origin uh, location. The ship has shifted locations. They found it in 2018 with the help of information provided by Radovan and the Ocean Science Survey. Maritime archaeologist Tamantha Thompson, Victoria Kiefer, and Zant applied to put the Montgomery in the National Register through the Wisconsin State Historic Preservation Office. They list the help of a few volunteers who came out with us to look at the site taking photographic data, gathering diagnostic data to confirm whether or not this was the Montgomery. In our analysis, there were two areas that looked kind of odd, which led us to the understanding that this was a double centerboard. That was important for identifying the vessel. The Montgomery is one of a handful of Wisconsin shipwrecks that contained two centerboards, and the only example of a double centerboard canal schooner, according to application for historic designation. Despite damage the vessel, the Montgomery shipwreck can help archaeologists and historians learn about double centerboard schooner construction, the lumber, grain, and coal industry, according to the registration form. The centerboard was used in Great Lake shipbuilding to let the vessel have better handling in the wind. Zant said sailors had dropped the centerboard, meaning the board would drop from the center of the ship and give the ship more space to go through canals. Launching in 1853 from uh, Clayton, New York, the ship was built for merchants John and Fowler, Henry. Estelin, originally named the Northern Light, the ship operated grain, lumber, and coal industries. 
the ship was relaunched as the Montgomery operated through the region until November 1890 when during a gale it struck rocks about six miles off Sheboygan, sank in 11 feet of water. No lives were lost, but there was a tug Sheboygan tried to pull the vessel free. It was found that she could not easily be recovered, according to the Milwaukee Sentinel. So is that supposed to be unique? They're saying it is, but there had to be more than this because of the way they worded it. So, yeah, because I was looking at the diagram and I couldn't tell. And I'm familiar with a centerboard as you put down the centerboard through the keel for stabilization. And I'm that's why I was trying to confuse or I was confused by what they meant by centerboard. centerboard. And the other reason is there is a, a, a wreck called the centerboard schooner wreck that was located in, in 1995. Uh, and off of St. Augustine in Florida. Uh-huh. And it said, uh, it's a cargo carrier, and the site is by two massive mounds of cargo, an area clear of cargo between two piles, which have facilitated operation of the centerboard. And it said, none of the wooden superstructure of the wreck survived, though the lowermost timbers were buried and, and, and uh, survived. But the centerboard that was dropped through the middle was not there. So that's what got me confused when they say centerboard. So maybe somebody out there can illuminate well, what, that topic for us. Well, what they're, the, I think the critical thing they're trying to highlight is it's a double center schooner. So it ha, it, that makes it sound like it had two centerboards. But I was curious because if you're in a canal, that's the other part that got me confused. Canals are shallow draft. Mm-hmm. So why would I need a centerboard? Well, you you need it for the when you're not traveling through the canal. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to see because uh, you know, just from my knowledge of sailboats, we used to have a sailboat. And it was it had a a swing keel, which was a right. centerboard. You know, a centerboard just dropped down, the swing keel would slide in. But if you had two. They're usually on the outside, and we called them lee boards. And those would be frequently added to, like, if you wanted to run sails on a canoe, then that's one of the techniques would be is that you would have these 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 two boards you'd put down. Mm-hmm. And then that would help prevent, you know, otherwise the wind blows in the sail and the your boat just slides sideways. You need something to kind of keep it going so you get that. You know, that tacking, you know, heading into the wind ability. Right. Uh, so, yeah, somebody who's really into this and understands. Uh, I did a quick search on double center boards, and about the only thing that comes up are articles talking about this wreck. So, yeah. And, and, and it seemed like in this period of time, just about anything that could be tried was. Uh, but you're, you're correct. I think al- almost all your canal vessels you tried to keep it as low as possible. And we, and I think that's why we had like, uh, um, if you look at some of the lumber haulers, the photos of them, I think those are fairly uh, shallow draws so they could bring them in to the piers. Yeah. Cause most of them are really like barges. Yeah. They're like, they're like barges with sails on them. Uh, The South Schooner Silver Lake. Is that this one or is this a diff- different one? 
Here, I'm going to paste this into the chat room. And here's one. This is from wisconsinshipwrecks.org. And this could very well be the same vessel. My internet's just slow enough to where I'm not getting any details. You'll probably be, if you, did you see the note in chat? Or maybe I, I need to. Uh, no, I did it. not. I'll paste it in the other one too. Do you see it there? Got to go back and find it. Hang on. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's got to be talking about the same one because you're talking to uh, Wisconsin again. Okay. No, Super Lake, eighteen eighty nine. Yeah, this one looks a little different. Is it? Because this one says the builder was location was Little Point, Sobble, Michigan. Well, the boat I'm looking at in the gallery is very, very, very large. <laughs> yeah. The South Schooner Silver Lake is the only example of a double centerboard scow schooner in Wisconsin waters and possibly all the Great Lakes has built Little Point Sable, Michigan in 1889. She had a single deck and three masts. Soon after Silver Lake was built, she was sold into partnership in Milwaukee. Shortly after that, she was sold to a partnership in Racine and then sold to one of the Racine partners, Nels Johnson. So here's another one that they're calling double hauled. <laughs> I mean, double uh, centerboard. Centerboard, yeah. Yeah, the scow schooner Silver Lake was cut in two by car ferry, the Pierre Marquette in the fog at 3 a.m. This morning, about 15 miles east of the port, Henry Eastman, one of the crew of the schooners, was knocked out of the boat and drowned. His body has not yet been recovered. The Silver Lake hails from Racine, was owned by uh, Nels Johnson. It was on its way to Eagle Harbor, Door County, Wisconsin, to Racine with a cargo of maple wood. Marquette was running from Ludington, Michigan, to Manitowoc. The ferry struck the schooner directly in the middle, cutting it in two. The schooner immediately sank, carrying with it Henry Eastman. The other members of the crew and captain barely had time to make their escape. The wreck sighted when the schooner Elsie Day arrived at Manitowoc. Yesterday, she reported that she had sighted the wreck of the scow Silver Lake, eight miles Due east of Sheboygan, the wreck was intact but in bad shape and has been has taken the mainsail, which was new from the wreck. Anchors were gone. Wow. Yeah, and this one it says the wreck is intact, rest upright in 210 feet of water. Depth of the mast is 140 feet. The anchor has been salvaged. There's considerable damage on port side just aft the midship where the collision took place. So there's another one. Yeah. So. so interesting. Uh, and then uh, th this is a long story here, and we're not going to read all of it. But the uh, eye candy is the is the photo there at the beginning of the article, and it says, uh, "Okay, yeah." Quiet evening when Sydney Harbor became a cauldron of hell, and. Uh, at first you look at it, I thought it was a cannon at a distance, but uh, it actually is a submarine. Okay, which one are we talking about? I was in the Niagara wreck. Which one are you at? The uh, National Geographic. Do you have that one? 
I don't see a national jersey. Sydney oh, Harbor. Sydney. Oh, Sydney Harbor. Gotcha. Yep. I was looking at the Niagara Falls schooner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and they and they give a little bit of background about the uh uh the captain of one of the vessels with sank was in town drinking it up and then uh let's see. It all began the night, the last day of May, 1942. Captain Boyd, a U.S. Navy skipper of the heavy cruiser USS Chicago, was drinking at King's Cross. He walked a short walk to the ship, which was berthed at Garden Island, when he heard the unmistakable roar of his own 14-inch rifles. The skipper hastily finished his drink, ran out of the bar in the freezing night, hot-footed it down the hill. He hastily aboard the cla- and the classic case of projection accused his officer on watch of being drunk and placed him under arrest. Uh, the Chicago's guns have been depressed as low as they go, firing at three Japanese midget submarines that were, of course, as we know, bent on destroying the American cruiser as the harbor was turned in seizing cauldron to death and destruction late autumn evening. Three co Hyoto class midget submarines, each with two member crew, had entered the harbor and had easily avoided the unfinished anti submarine boom net. One even followed the manly ferry into the kill zone. Two of the midget submarines were detected intact before they could successfully engage any Allied vessels. The crew scuttled their boats and shot themselves dead. These two subs were later recovered by the Australians. One of them is at the War Memorial in Canberra, and Kibbs climb all over it today. The third submarine attempted to torpedo the heavy cruiser USS Chicago, but instead sank the converted ferry HMAS Cuttable, killing 21 sailors. Shell-shocked Sydney Siders interred a suicide sailors with full military honor. Oddly, this is a time when Japanese troops were under Imperial High Command orders to do quite the opposite. A diver and Japanese submarine in Broken Bay. Uh, they're showing that the photo there in the article. As for the skipper of the Chicago, he tried to blow his brains out after losing his ship for the reels this time in the Battle of Savo Island, one of the Navy's worst ever defeats a couple of months after the Sydney debacle. It was the opening of the Navy Battle Guadalcanal where the U.S. Navy dropped their Marines on the Solomon Islands beaches, then backed off to slug it out with Imperial Navy. As for Bode, he died of his wounds in agony someday. Those are really, really small boats. That is, you call them a submarine, but it's more like imagining taking a torpedo and just putting people in it. <laughs> with a, oh, yeah. With a little sonning tower there. Uh, yeah. Wow. I posted a couple of pictures mm-hmm. of small ones. The third picture I posted looks r- quite a bit alike, like the one that was on display in Benton Harbor in 1942. And it was one of the Japanese submarines from Pearl Harbor. They put on a flatbed and did a bond, war bond drive. And I've got a picture. I don't have it handy, but the picture I posted, the third one, Looks amazingly yeah. like that. You can see how big that is compared to the other two. Yeah, the yeah, that's uh, much larger. Yeah. Now these have been on uh, launched from another vessel. 
Yeah, by another sub, usually. Oh, the small ones yeah. were. Yeah, because uh, there was that uh, sub that they recently found off Hawaii where it was one of those large submarines that could hold another submarine. Let's see. I think we got, is that, is that the end of it or do we have another one? Well, Niagara Falls, you hadn't hit that one? Oh, no, we haven't. So here's a hundred year old shipwreck that uh, had been, kind of become a landmark there. And they got a photo of it. Uh, it was a intact iron shipwreck that has been stuck on the rocks above Niagara Falls for the past 101 years was dislodged a week ago today. Heavy rains and winds had pushed it closer to a precipice. Authorities are concerned it could keep moving and eventually plunge over the edge. So why are they concerned? Well, nature, it, nature is having its way. It could fall on somebody. They Only if the a, mate of the mist is right under it. <laughs> they said this is the first time they abandoned a 122-foot vessel, a tourist attraction known as the Iron Scow, uh, Scow is an old flat-bottom sailboat, uh, has moved an appreciable distance from its resting place in the last century. The Halloween storm pushed the ship 150 feet down the Niagara River on the Canadian side before it got caught in more rocks than Niagara Parks Commission tells CNN the boat has apparently flipped on its side and spun around. Several weather conditions experienced yesterday have caused Iron Scow, which remained lodged in the powerful upper rapids above the falls for over a century to shift significantly from its position. As for how the so-called scow got there in the first place, two men were dredging operation August 6, 1918, when they dumped, when the dumping scow they were in suddenly broke loose from its tow tug and got carried downriver towards certain disaster. After opening the bottom, dumping doors to flood and in turn, Slow the boat down. The men eventually got the scow stuck on some rocks just 650 yards away from plunging over the Horseshoe Falls, the largest of three waterfalls that make up Niagara Falls. Using a breeches buoy, which we've talked about in previous episodes, the U.S. Coast Guard, along with help from Niagara Firemen and Fire Department, was able to rescue both men, but not before the buoy's ropes tangled and mishaps solved by WW. One veteran, William Red Hill Sr., who bravely ventured out into the water to fix the lines. Recovering the vessel, meanwhile, was deemed too risky, and it's been out there disintegrating the river ever since. A, a visible reminder not to mess with the sheer power of the falls. Currently, Niagara Parks is keeping an eye on the ship in case it moves, using security cameras to monitor its condition around the clock for the time being. According to Bill, the scowl may be stuck for days or for years. It's anyone's guess. And I read another article where they where somebody had said they were concerned it was going to fall on something. But like you said, yeah. Now, they said that was a tourist attraction, and I've been to Niagara Falls, and I didn't even know about that. Ah, so yeah. what is the tourist attraction? Because they're not going to go out and take a look at it. And it looks like the pictures were taken by a drone. Yeah, and I think these are new photos, the ones that are in this article. But it would have been, uh, you know, what, 150 feet. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's probably one of those things that was on a plaque somewhere. <laughs> the whole the whole thing's a tourist attraction. Now I'm looking at one of the videos, and it's like if you didn't know what it was, 
and you didn't have binoculars, you didn't see it. It almost yeah. looks like a breakwater. <laughs> it does uh, when it's sitting on its side. In the, in yeah. Its, uh, Depending the, on the, the angle you're looking at, it's a breakwater. Yeah. Well, and you knew it wasn't going to be there forever. Yeah. Rocks erode, steel breaks down. It was eventually going to have this happen, so it it was just that day. Oh, the history of the Iron Scow. There's actually a, in the article a, a link to a story. So, so that does it for scuba in the news. Did you I cover know. the one on Russian brews? Oh no, I didn't. Where's that one? Crap. Let me see. I, I must have done. When we start it. talking about four point seven million, that sounds like a lot of booze. That's a hell of a party. Yeah. Let me. Uh, let me. Pull up that booze here. I think I remember something about cognac, but yeah, hundreds of bottles of posh booze for Russian czar worth 4.7 million pounds salvaged from a shipwreck, a hoard of expensive bottles of liquor destined for Tsar Nicholas II uh, have been salvaged from World War I shipwreck. A Swedish team of experts managed to save hundreds of bottles from the ship sunk by the German submarine in the Baltic Sea. If auctioned, the hoard could fetch $6 million or 4.7 million pounds. Ocean X is a group behind the the liquor's rescue mission. It specializes in salvaging bottles from shipwrecks. The team wrote on Instagram, the last shipment of rare liquor for Tsar Nicholas II, Russia, is now recovered. A search and salvage project that started 20 years ago is now complete. Now all we have to do is bombard the Internet with all sorts of stories about it. I like that one bottle on the right-hand side, though. That's pretty cool. Yeah, scientists are trying to determine whether alcohol is drinkable. Well, if it's worth 4.7, it better it better be, right? Yeah. The Ocean X team and I explore cooperative with a special equipped salvage vessel, Deep Sea Worker, was able to salvage bottles of D. Hartman & Co. Cognac and Benedictine Liquor nowadays owned by Bacardi, from 77 meters deep between Sweden and Finland at International Waters. A group managed to bring up 600 bottles of cognac and 300 bottles of herbal liquor, Benedictine, from the depths of the ocean. They took their bounty from the Cairo shipwreck in late October and are now testing the alcohol to see if it's fit to drink. The ship sunk back in May uh, 1917 after leaving Sweden with its alcoholic cargo was sunk in the Sea of Åland with explosives. According to Ocean X, the ship's crew survived and returned to Sweden on a different vessel. The bottles of cognac on board were produced by old distillers called De Hartman, which is now owned by Bacardi. It took team years to clear the ship of abandoned fishing nets before they were able to inspect it. Ocean X eventually raised the bottles with a remote underwater vehicle. Researchers said the importance of this event cannot be overemphasized since we will make tons of money. No, they didn't say that. Uh, It's only a find of a rare cognac, a liquor that is also part of the history of former Imperial Russia. The value of the find is yet to be decided because the cognac is from a brand which no longer exists. They are likely to be extremely expensive, though, and may be sold at an international auction house. The Ocean X team are confident the bottles have not leaked and that there are a layer of air between the cork and the spirits inside protecting it. Many of the cognac bottles 
were sealed with a thin layer of tin, and other archaeological nudes remain of the ancient 30-foot sea monster. Yeah, sure. Okay. I just gave you a picture of the 30-foot sea monster, by the way. Okay. That looks like something out of, <laughs> out of the movie Beetlejuice. Jurassic Park. Yeah. But yeah. it's funny how they just went from one to bingo. There's another topic there. <laughs> oh, well, that's the way it is now. Uh, you, you, I, because they, they have to, you know, we can't keep our, you know, all the youngsters, they have, they can't, they can't keep attention spans. The other trick now is, uh, where you start an article and you scroll and then another article starts at the bottom. Like, oh, we thought you just wanted to keep reading whatever we put in front of you. Yeah. So, but, uh, yeah, booze in the water. Um. Have, has any of this alcohol ever been really drinkable? You never seem to hear about. Yeah. I, I, I've, I, I've seen like every time it's come down to somebody actually opening and drinking, it's been like, not, not anything you would want. Yeah. So I can't see how this would be different. How, and it's deep enough where they're going down with ROVs. So that was under extreme pressure. So uh, I think you're going to have some salt water that's uh, worked its way in there. Did they say how deep it was? 77 meters, I thought. Uh, Yeah, okay. So that's probably over 200. Yeah, so you've got uh, multiple atmospheres at least. But we're on one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh, I don't know if that cork is holding that sea back at that pressure. Uh, but this depends on how much air that's in it. Actually, probably the less air would be would be better. They're make they're trying to make it sound like that air is a is a cushion. So they were optimistic they could see air in it. Mm-hmm. But that's when you brought it to the surface. Any air that it would just be compressed down below. Okay. Well, you really wouldn't feel it down below because the bottle is not going to, you know, it's not, the bottle is not bending in. So if it's sealed, there's no pressure on the inside. Correct? Yes, that's true. Well, I'm just, because what's, what's keeping the water out? I mean, it's not coming through the glass. It'd be coming through the top. Yep, through the seal. Through the seal. So unless that tin, you know, the pressure could actually collapse that in and actually make it kind of seal it even better. But I think that cork in general isn't going to, wouldn't be enough. You'd have to have something more to it. So I'll be curious. I, my, my prediction is that they're, they're going to, you're going to quietly hear about this about a year and a half from now that uh, they did some testing and they found out it was, but they must be making money because this is their, what they do. So is it for the bottles? I don't know. Or is it just to say that you've got one? I mean, you, you, well, you it's probably... like you want something off the Titanic just because you can say you got something. Yeah. Yeah. Nostalgia, novelty, collectible item. Yeah. Who else has got one? Just me. Okay. So this time it doesn't. Yeah, we got through them all. <laughs> wow. 
Maybe I just need a nap. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Um, so you, do you, let's say, do you have a safety story this week? Does, do we have a part two? Well, we were talking last week, <clears throat> excuse me, about uh, why divers die, part one. There's actually a part two from that. And they talk about, um, let's, uh, you know, let's look at reasons why divers do die, including running into running boat propellers, being unfamiliar with dive gear, and a not that well-known health hazard that leads to quick death by drowning. Ooh. Now, we've talked about this one before. Drowning while having plenty of air, and the blame is placed on immersion pulmonary edema, which can be caused by hyperhydration. It happens when fluid leaks from the bloodstream to the air sacs in the lungs, can lead to heart failure and other cardiac problems. Now, according to a cardiologist out of Lakeland, Florida, who's also a tech diver instructor, <clears throat> excuse me, who consults for Dan, he said it's not depth-related and often occurs in healthy individuals. It can be difficult to diagnose and is most likely underreported because of the conditions present, such as saltwater aspiration syndrome, pulmonary decompression sickness, and respiratory infections can also cause some of this. But the symptoms include uh, breathing difficulties and confused actions like swimming in the wrong direction, believing a regulator isn't working properly, indicating you're out of air when you're patently not, rejecting an alternate air source when you're truly out of air. Those are symptoms of that. And they say, and I think we talked a little bit about it because chilly water and exertion increases the likelihood of that occurring. So, Water dives can be a good place for that to happen, but they're also talking about, hey, it happens in the southern climates also. And they gave some cases uh, in 2017, died, they died in less than 45 feet of water, found on the seaboard or on the seabed after the individual unsuccessfully tried to move all their gear. Uh, the other diver passed away on the surface after a 45-minute dive to 33 feet. Computer showed he had three minute safety stop, took it, had plenty of air, but seemed to have drowned for no reason. Um, they were talking about, that was originally thought to be a mechanism of cold water. It is happening in the warm water. And uh, what they're saying is, it could be part of it that people are taking medication that is responding to the depth um, powerful diuretics, bronchodilators, people that use that kind of stuff. It also mentioned that people who suffer from hypertension, high blood pressure, and especially if they smoke, they're more at risk than anyone else for the IPE. Other factors incre um, also increase the risk, such as too tight wetsuits, breathing high levels of oxygen, as you do with uh, accelerated deco. Uh, repetitive deep dives, missed decompression stops, and interestingly enough, the consumption of fish oil, which a lot of people take out or take as supplemental to help them with blood pressure and heart. So the key item they're talking about right now then is to avoid excessive hydration before a dive. Now, it sounds like it runs counter to prior advice written about being well hydrated 
to counteract the potential for DCI. And they were talking about, in general, that take the advice of staying well hydrated on a daily basis, but lower your IPE risk by not drinking excessive amounts of water before a dive. It also says if you've suffered IPE once, there's a very high chance you'll suffer it again. So if a casualty, meaning they've had it before, continues to dive, it's recommended to avoid diving in remote locations. If he does, consider carrying diuretics and a bronchodilator with him. And it says using vasodilators to prevent IPE are underway. But the key item is gentlemen divers might have a better excuse for carrying them on dive trips. Next item came up was dive boats. In uh, April 2018, Chinese divers surfed us at Apple Island in the Philippines without any kind of surface marker, was struck and killed by another passing dive boat. Uh, Dan reports talks of a 61-year-old diver made an entry into rough water while the boat's propeller was still turning. He either hit his head on that or the rear platform, but regardless, he was knocked unconscious and fatally aspirated water. So when servicing from a dive, it's a good reason to pop up away from the boat in the event somebody had accidentally started it and you didn't really understand or hear it. Said last June, British diver became unconscious and drowned after hitting his head on the underside of his support boat. Uh, a Russian diver attempting to board a dive boat in Egypt's Red Sea was in the process of reversing away from the reef, didn't understand the warnings coming from the deck crew, was drawn to the propellers with Extremely dreadful consequences. And they had some articles about uh, it was so mangled and intertwined between the bolts and the, the shafts, they had to be towed to shore before they could get his remains out. So not a good thing. No. Uh, then there are speeding boats that ignore overlooked dive flags. Last August, 20, a 23-year-old diver was hit by a passing boat while servicing off Hollywood Beach in Florida. The dive gear was ruined. He survived the injuries. So he came up tank first. The culprit sport fisherman boat with a black bottom is still at large. Other one they said you have to watch out for is bad sea and weather conditions. So weather and water conditions obviously have a crucial effect on whether it's safe to dive. Sometimes it's a lot easier to get off the boat than it is to get back on the boat. And it has an article here about the dive staff should be cracking down on divers, especially novice divers, when conditions look less than optimum. Gave an idea here, a 27-year-old diver with 14 dives in his logbook, ran a dive year while aboard, went on a group tour to an area known for strong currents. Used his air really quick. Dive guide ascended with him, but reported that the individual had difficulty resisting a down current. At nine feet deep, the guide signaled to him to grasp some kelp, but the victim let go, was last seen carried away by a strong current, and was never found. Uh, risk of injury and death shoots up when the diver gets separated from the group. Uh, that happened when a 65-year-old diver somehow got separated from a guided group of divers, serviced alone in rough sea conditions. He had been seen struggling to get a tagline, but sank before anyone on the boat could get him. 
questions, of course, is how come he didn't drop his weight? How come he didn't inflate the BC? It wasn't addressed. That's why they said it's very wise to stick like glue to your buddy or guide in less than ideal conditions in the water. The other one was know your gear and know your gear before you get into the water. Every report has cases of divers who went out with unfamiliar or improperly rigged equipment. Tragic example of this was provided by a 59-year-old male diver who, even though he had a number of different dive certifications, had not dove for a long period, but he wanted to try out a new dry suit and a new computer. Sending with his buddy from 130-foot bounce, brief stop at 65, started struggling with the equipment. 20 feet, he was struggling with the mask, but he assumed he was out of air, gave him his alternate, but the victim lost consciousness before they reached the service and died. Turned out his main regulator, long overdue for maintenance, was hard to breathe at any depth. His primary tank was empty. His secondary supply of pony tank was mounted in such a way that the regulator's second stage would not reach his mouth. And it was full. Uh, the British Subaquatics has noticed a number of incidents involving the use of surface marker buoys deployed from depth. That's because deconversion stop diving is more common in the UK and the buoy is deployed from deeper water, especially when doing a safety stop. But in these instances, the diver often got entangled in the line and got dragged upwards. An, an unscheduled event and often a rapid ascent that increased their susceptibility for DCI. And contaminated air is another thing to watch for, though not a frequent item. Something to watch out for, especially on uh, liveaboards. Said, look at the compressor air intake to ensure it's not near any source of carbon monoxide, like the boat's exhaust system or galley exhaust. A rudimentary inspection of the tank you're supplied can alert you to possible concerns, meaning look at the sphincter filter in it. Is that looking like it's rusty or being blocked? That might be a good uh, indication. If the tank rattles, you might think there's something in it like rust. Says a British driver on his last resort vacation in September found his recently serviced regulator became gradually more difficult to breathe. As soon as he got home, he had a service technician look at it and found it was mostly blocked with aluminum powder from what they presume was improperly serviced tanks. A bigger problem with then bad gear, they're saying, let's see what that was here. Oh, uh, it said, we're not able to document a single case in which equipment failure directly caused a diver's death or injury. It has been the diver's response to the problem that results in the pathology, meaning you do it or you don't. And the last part said, good news and bad news. said, um, some good news, at least from the British subaquatics, DCI incidents are declining. That's probably due to the efficiency of diver rescue techniques including controlled buoyant lifts and air sharing. Unfortunately, they said analysis of resuscitation techniques indicates recovery rates of less than 10%. CPR can be enhanced significantly above a board a dive boat if an auto-external defibrillator is on hand. And they also talk about a litany of near-miss accidents uh, without apparent medical consequences that has been increasing 
Uh, last year, they had 19, which is higher than the average for the last previous 10 years. So they talk about their advice is, as has been from the past, meaning why divers die, stay pretty much the same. Know your dive experience and boundaries. Stay vigilant with your weight, your health, medical conditions. Get familiar with your gear you're using. Don't dive in con uh, conditions you can't handle or may come up. Keep an eye on your dive buddy, your air, your computer, and watch out for that boat propeller. Wow. Good advice. Now, and nothing that, we didn't already know, but sometime we exceed. Yeah. I, it was interesting them talking about you need to be hydrated but not overly hydrated. Well, I suppose another item is when you finish, drink then after you dive because you got surface intervals. Yeah. And I don't necessarily, that means I can't drink a cup of hot coffee before I go diving in the ice. I'm not overly hydrating. I would, it'd be nice if we had a little bit more data, and maybe they do, of are, are people running in the problems where they're, they hear that they should be hydrated and then they, they, they exceed what they would normally need to drink to be hydrated? It didn't really say that because I would also suspect that's more in line with southern climes where you can get dehydrated really quick. If you're ice diving, I've never been dehydrated on an ice dive or winter diving. Have you? Not really. I, I'm trying to th – usually I will bring, you know, some extra water just to make sure I'm hydrated. Uh, so I do drink more, but it's not because I feel like I, I'm dehydrated. It's just because I feel like I need to drink. Are you talking about in the winter or summer or both? Uh, both. Uh, and I probably drink a little less in the winter, but I think that's just a natural thing because I, I know like for winter survival techniques, that's uh, one of the tricks is make sure you're hydrated because you just don't feel in the winter like you need to drink as much. Yeah, and that is true. That is true. But by the same token, by diving, you know, I'll have that, and it's not usually hot, hot anymore by the time you're drinking it. And you get the whole cut, and you're, you know you got a thermos of a hot tea or hot chocolate or something. Yeah. And um, generally, you finish it when you come up. Mm -hmm. And I, to me, I don't think that's going to be the issue. No. Well, in in the winter ice dives, I guess the the deepest ice dive I did was uh, Lake Sixteen, and we did that one. Yeah. And traditionally, the I haven't they haven't been deep. They're usually you know, Singer liked a few times. Oh. Yeah, I think most of the ones, I mean, Lake 16, what was it, 50, 60 feet. Yeah. But most people did not go down there and spend a lot of time. They spent it around the platforms, which was near the bailout bottles on the platform plus. Mm -hmm. Straight direct shot right to the hole. Well, speaking of that, is any, have you noticed anybody getting in the water in the last week? No, I have not, and I have not been in the position to get wet. So, no. <laughs> yeah, I would say no. I have not heard of any. Yeah, I, I haven't. I haven't seen anybody. Oh, I take that back. Anymore. It's been on Facebook. Who is on? Uh, we had a couple of people saying, "Who wants to get wet this weekend?" Well, I saw people talking about it, but I did they because it was uh, I think Jim 
and somebody else was. I think it was Ted. Ted, Ted, Jim, and then somebody, and somebody new in the Mud Club group. Well, I, as soon as I, I see the neck doctor next week, uh, and he's going to tell me what I can do or can't do. But if he says not a problem, I'm getting wet that weekend, and it'll be in Midland Lake or maybe the river. Because you got you got to get a pre-turkey dive in because we got that coming up on the thirtieth. Oh gosh, I know. I'm I'm still painting. I still got painting to do. I painted uh, four door trims and a door last weekend, and the doors require three coats one side, three coats the other, and then cabinet doors require four coats, and then the trim I can usually get by with two and some touch up. So I am. I I feel like I should be past the halfway point, but it does. I don't even know. <laughs> even say I'm I'm to there. Uh, the chat room's got some good conversations. Derek's reminding me what happens if you don't go diving for two weeks. And oh, let me let me uh, see if I can download this and then copy link. Uh, put it into your. There it is. I put it in where you can see it. And those those <laughs> who are who are those who are in the uh, who just listening on the podcast, we certainly appreciate you listening. But you are missing out by not. Well, I know. I'm looking at these characters now. This is not all bad, by the way. <laughs> the, look at the guy on the left, and look at the trim, svelte figure of the guy on the right. That's true. You're you're making a I good mean, mark, a good point there. Well, I mean, we just talked about what are the problems of being a little over and you want to be more trim. And that guy on the right sure looks enthusiastic. He looks, I'm ready for anything. He looks fit. Which one do you want to take to a party and you think you'd have more fun with? I think the guy, well, depends. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I don't think I'd want the guy on the right if he'd had a little pee too much. To drink. Yeah. yeah. He well, could be I'm, a mean drunk. Yeah. Well, I'm also thinking the guy in the right is not the one you want to have as your buddy diver <laughs> when you do get back in the water. Yeah. He he could take what he wanted. Yeah. He's going to come up with two sets of gear. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh like to thank everybody who's been supporting us. Uh, we're, we're at that time of the year. We kind of do a little bit of push trying to get people who have been enjoying the program for a while. And if you have the means, we'd certainly appreciate your help. You can join us on Patreon. $3 or more gets you early access to the show notes. You can find out how to do that by going to our website, www.scubobsess.com and clinking on, clinking, <laughs> clicking on over the Patreon links. Uh, we're on Twitter at Scoob Obsessed. We're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. You can email us at the show at Scoob Obsessed. And we appreciate any feedback, any of those reviews that you can do on your podcast listening platform of choice helps us get new listeners and keeps things going. And I'd like to hear any comments. We yeah. really don't get, for as many people who, who really does li- do listen to us, yeah. In varied locations. Talk to us. Yeah. Tell us yeah. something. 
Well, we, and we know people are, different. Are, are out there because uh, we keep, if you go to the our website, we have the fan page where you can click and you can pin, put a pin in the map. And uh, we every so every couple of weeks we get a new fan putting a pin in the map. Uh, we get new likes on Facebook, so uh, we know you're out there. Hopefully, you're enjoying the program. Uh, gosh, let me see what we're we're up to episode 426. And that doesn't include bonus episode. So you figure each of those is at least an hour, if not an hour and a half. You know, we've got 550 some hours of a, of enjoyment or torture, depending on how much you like the program. And, uh, yeah, so appreciate whatever support you can do. If nothing else, tell a friend, listen with a friend, do something like that. It seem, seems like we should ask him the sense of stuff. No. <laughs> we'll take well, dive gear. I mean, uh, who knows? We need to have some kind of summer event. Uh, if you're around, let's go diving. It'd be interesting to see who, who listens yeah. to us who could come to a dive or something. Yeah, I've thought or about that. Maybe. if they're diving someplace and it's a couple of people, maybe we could go that way. Yeah, well, I'm thinking this next year is going to be my year for trying to get out and diving. And I've been saying that the last three or four years, but the kids are now so, I mean, being mostly empty nesters and hopefully I get this remodeling done in the cold winter months, that should leave me nice and open for a diving season. So maybe I, I wouldn't mind doing just a little bit of driving and just diving different locations. So maybe we could even ask fans to give us some suggestions of locations and we'll go dive some new spots. I've, I've also wanted to do like, uh, you know, take a vacation and do like a, uh, one of those, you know, you dive every four to six hours in a different state type of trips. <laughs> Dive till I can't dive no more. Now, I know guys who do that jumping. They go to different states and dive or jump to how many states they can jump in in one day. But uh, diving would be harder because there's more work involved. Yeah. Well, I was was watching this, uh, reading an article, and it was about this kid. He had to have been like 13, and he had done half marathons in every state in the country. At 13. It's like, what? <laughs> He's got some good family support, I'll tell you that. Well, I was, that's what I was thinking. Let alone half marathon. Jeez. Well, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, snow, snow, go away. Come back <laughs> next year. Yeah. Just, just freeze enough to kill everything off and then spring can start. Yes. Well, are you ready for that time of the show? I am. I am sitting right here, just relaxed and ready to go. Okay, here it is. As I stepped out of the shower, I heard someone in my kitchen downstairs. Knowing that my wife was out, I grabbed my 1903 heirloom rifle, which no longer seemed to work, and I crept downstairs, forgetting the fact that I was in my birthday suit. I came around the corner with a gun raised, only to find my wife loading the dishwasher. What are you doing, she asked. I thought I heard an intruder. I came down to scare him. Scanning the contours of my doughy naked body, she mumbled, didn't need the gun. But I'm sure she meant that in a very nice way. Yeah. Yeah, sure she did. 
So until next time, <laughs> to go out there and get wet. And stay safe. <laughs> <laughs>